Howdy, thought evolutionists. <laughs> My name is Stefan Duvier, and finally, another week has passed, and we are back here at Thoughtvolution, the podcast where the thoughts of others meet evolving minds. Now, people have been asking me, what makes a person a thoughtvolutionist, in my opinion? And I would answer that question like this. A thoughtvolutionist is somebody who is willing to keep an open mind, to listen to others attentively, and to evolve on topics they have either never thought about before, or topics that they used to have a very strong and perhaps even narrow-minded opinion on. This podcast is all about learning, listening, loving, forgiving, being honest and genuine, and it's about not ever having to justify being human. And that a big part of our very existence is that we all live on a spectrum and not in a box with a particular label on it. When I decided whether I wanted to do a video channel or a podcast, it was clear to me pretty quickly that a podcast would be the better medium for what I was planning to do, because it gives people an opportunity to share their story in a safe, unjudgmental, and open environment. Having said that, we welcome everyone here. The only requirements are for you to keep an open ear and an open mind. Now it's time to introduce my very special guest today for the first ever remote interview, hoping that technology does not fail us. <laughs> Nariman was born in Cape Town, South Africa during the times of apartheid. She eventually decided that life is an adventure worth pursuing as she embarked on the journey of a lifetime, first to Singapore and later to Germany, where she now lives in a place very dear to me personally the beautiful city of Dresden. <laughs> the name Nariman means vivacious in the Persian language, and boy, that word perfectly captures the personality and life of this firefly of a woman who has always had a hunger for life, no matter how difficult times may have been. Moving across the world, knowing that you carry a hereditary disease in you, going to dialysis to try and survive another day until you finally, finally get that life-saving donor kidney that your body welcomes and embraces as a true second chance. Nariman will tell us about the kindness she experienced through it all, the gratitude she carries within, and what it feels like to be so very close to dying just to then be gifted a whole new life. Let's give a warm welcome to the wonderful and vivacious Nariman. Let's start by talking about your childhood in South Africa. Perhaps some of our listeners are picturing little Nariman petting elephants in the morning and chasing lion cups in the afternoon, strolling through breathtaking images of rolling grasslands and tree-dotted plains while eating bobati, the national dish of South Africa. I can imagine that life was not really this idyllic, especially for a person of color during apartheid, the system of institutionalized racial segregation that existed in South Africa from 1948 until the early 1990s. What was life really like for a little girl growing up in Cape Town? And what on earth is Bobati? So I guess growing up in apartheid South Africa was, for me as a little girl, I guess just like anywhere else in the world, except that I was aware from a very young age um, that 
everybody who lived around me, the neighbors and everyone looked like me. My primary school, everybody looked like me too. And so I was aware of this from a very young age and of course became more and more aware of it as I grew older. I can't tell you how often I've heard this question, you know, if I see wild animals around on my travels around the world, especially in Europe. I guess nowadays, yeah, uh, with the world at your fingertips, people know that um, it's it's not just you see them walking around. And uh, bubuiti is a beef mince dish, sweet, savory, with the, an egg and milk custard on top. It's really good. That bubuti dish really sounds divine. I might have to stop by for a plate of deliciousness the next time I happen to be in Dresden. And speaking of good food, you mentioned that you love to cook. What are some of your specialties and what role has food and cooking played in your life? So cooking has played a big part in my life, I must say. The longer I've lived outside uh, South Africa, the more I miss the traditional food. My mother was really old school and thought she always cooked too much and thought, you know, what what if a hungry person arrived and, and you know, uh, wanted food and that's why she cooked more than, than was necessary. Uh, but that's uh, the kind of household I grew up in. But it has followed me throughout my life. I love cooking. I enjoy making all sorts of uh, Indian dishes. But I come from Cape Town, where the Malay culture has played a big role in my life. And so I cook Malay dishes, Indian dishes, yeah, traditional, what we call Bure dishes in South Africa. And so, yeah. At some point, you decided to leave South Africa and move to Singapore and later on to Germany. How did that come about and what made you catch the travel bug? Out of all the places you have lived, where do you feel most at home? My heart was always in Europe. I remember from a young age, I, I've just always had this dream to move to Europe. But it was not easy to get uh, the necessary papers. And uh, that's why I decided to apply to Singapore for a job because it was part of the Commonwealth. So I didn't need to apply from outside Singapore. I could arrive there and, and then apply there. And that's how I, I got my papers. I ended up uh, living there for four years. And uh, But my as I said, I always hankered after Europe. I did want to go to Switzerland, but it was just impossible uh, for a South African. And I ended up in Germany, but I'm really, really happy here. And so I would say my heart is in Dresden, Germany. Do you ever get homesick? And if so, what do you miss the most when that happens? And what are your own remedies for making yourself feel better in those situations? I must say, the longer I'm away from South Africa, the less homesick I have become. Um, I remember when I first moved to Singapore, after one year there, <laughs> I was so homesick and I would cook something traditional and cry and, oh, you know, my house smells like my mother's house. And <laughs> But I went uh, uh, back on holiday and I realized that, you know, they don't sit around waiting for me to come home. And so... I went back and I felt better about my life. And so um, I, I came to, to Germany and, yeah, of course, it was easier for friends to come and visit me or they 
preferred visiting me in Europe rather than Asia. And so I did see friends more. And so my um, I wasn't that homesick anymore. Your chosen home, Dresden, which is a truly magical and beautiful place often referred to as Florence by the Elbe River, is located in the east of Germany. And sadly, despite its charm and rich history, Eastern Germany today still has a somewhat racist, quote-unquote, slight touch of neo-Nazism reputation. Living there as a person of color, have you ever come across racist remarks or reactions? And do you feel welcome there? You know, I can honestly tell you that I've never felt threatened or at the beginning, there were not that many foreigners. Uh, when I first came to Dresden, there were not that many foreigners here. And so people used to stare, but I never felt threatened. And I have never experienced any kind of racism, knock, knock. And it can honestly tell you that I haven't. But uh, while working in Singapore, I, I teach English and there was a, a German from Hamburg in my class. And he told me that if he were me, he wouldn't move to the eastern part of Germany. And But he had never been here. And so I just thought I'm going to, I, I was really lucky I got a full-time job here. And so I decided to just, you know, make the move and come. And I've never regretted it. Let me pick your brain, since you're somebody who chose to move to Germany. There appear to be mixed opinions about former Chancellor Angela Merkel's very welcoming attitude towards immigrants and especially refugees from war zones such as Syria. Millions of people have found peace and a new home in a country that, in my personal opinion, does have a great responsibility when it comes to being humanitarian to other nations, simply because of the grave mistakes made by my own ancestors in the past and the millions of lives destroyed in the process. I am very much pro-immigrant and for helping refugees, and I even had the pleasure of teaching German to some Syrian refugees a long time ago. They are amazing individuals, and they have actually become good friends of mine. One of them just graduated from medical school, and the other has his own dental office in eastern Germany. I'm truly proud of them. I also know that every immigrant story is an individual one, and that not every person manages to assimilate. A new culture can be overwhelming, and let's be honest, there are black sheep in every flock. I just feel like immigrants, and especially refugees, are often made a scapegoat now for everything we think is wrong in a society, and we tend to forget that every person is unique, and that yes, there are good people and bad people, but to me, condemning an entire group of people for an individual's mistake is always wrong. As an insider, so to speak, what do you think about life of immigrants in Germany in the midst of all of these often very hurtful discussions? So let me start by saying that um, I have never experienced a war situation, so I can't even imagine what it's like uh, for someone to flee their country just to, to have a better life uh, somewhere else. It, it, it must be heart-wrenching. And then on the other hand, they are economic refugees, just wanting a better life for themselves. Um, and so everyone should be given that chance. You know, who are we to judge? What do you like the most about life in Germany in particular? 
And do you think you will ever decide to move back to South Africa? You know, what I like most about Germany is the, the openness. But let me clarify that. I lived in Asia and um, many people will tell you that people are always smiling. But to me, it, it, it didn't appear to come from the heart. But in Germany, you can really see if, if people like you, but you can also see if they don't like you. And, and that's what I appreciate the most because I'm, I'm frank uh, with my feelings. I'm really direct. I What I, the other thing I like about uh, Germany is the healthcare. I've made so many good friends here. My friends, most of my friends are, are German. And so I think I've really assimilated and I don't see myself going back to South Africa. Now, one thing you mentioned and one thing that Germany is known for is a robust social welfare system that includes a lot of perks for all residents of the country, including those who are not German nationals years of paid parental leave after the birth of a child, insurance-prescribed spa treatments that can last four to six weeks, free education for all, and, most importantly, that incredible universal healthcare system. For many Americans, the mere imagination of that sounds too good to be true. We will talk about your medical issues in just a second, but broadly speaking, What has life been like for you in a country that appears to offer such a solid and reliable system of services, especially in terms of healthcare? Oh my goodness, I can't tell you what a godsend this German health insurance system is. It is unbelievable. I, um, I can't praise it enough. It has been my salvation. I, I uh, don't need to pay anything when I go uh, and get a prescription filled uh, at the pharmacist or uh, staying overnight in hospital. I've had my fair share of uh, hospital stays. So it's just amazing. Now, let's talk about your health. You suffer from polycystic kidney disease, an inherited disorder in which clusters of cysts develop in the kidneys ultimately leading to kidney failure, as it did in your case. You mentioned that you lost three brothers to this disease, and I'm very sorry to hear that. When and how did you find out about having this? What were your symptoms, and how did you manage them pre-dialysis? So I first found out my father was really sick uh, while I was growing up and he suffered from kidney problems, heart problems. And I think the doctors had no idea what was really wrong with him, but he did take a lot of uh, tablets. As I aged, um, I was really young when we discovered that I had high blood pressure and, and later on, a doctor told me that it's a side effect of this polycystic kidney disease. And um, and I remember a lady who uh, at the pharmacy where I used to go in Cape Town, she said she remembered that I was really young and I had to take blood pressure tablets. And, um, and so um, the doctor, uh, uh, my GP didn't tell me what my problem was. I then went to an internist. And he sent me for a scan, and um, and when he looked at the at the scan, he said, you know, that was what he was afraid of because when he heard my history, he then realized, oh, she could be suffering from polycystic kidneys. 
my brother uh, was 22 years old, one of my brothers, when he discovered he had high blood pressure. So why nobody discovered that? I have no idea. And so I was the first one that was diagnosed with this. And of course, I told everyone and uh, of my siblings, and then they went to get themselves checked. So I was on, that was the only thing I was on for a long time, just the blood pressure tablets. And then I moved to Singapore and I continued taking blood pressure tablets there. And it wasn't until I came to Germany that um, for some reason, you know, everything just became uh, so much clearer to me. Uh, doctors were really informative. I went to um, my gynecologist and then I asked her if she could find a, a, an English-speaking nephrologist for me. Remember, this is, you know, the former East Germany and the doctors uh, learned Russian at school. So I, I couldn't find many who could speak English. So my GP didn't uh, give me a, um, a referral, but my gynecologist did. And um, and I was really, really happy to have found uh, this doctor, nephrologist. He treated me for a long time. I was also on a on a um, trial that, if it had worked, would have uh, cleared up my would have shrunk the kidneys and uh, not the kidneys, the cysts. Uh, I'm sorry, and um, and eventually would have just um, and and of course it got rid of a lot of water in the cyst. And uh, but in my case, it didn't work out so well before. I started um, dialysis, I then had a, a fistula created. And a fistula is the link uh, between the dialysis machine and your body for the blood to flow in and out. And um, But uh, after a few months, the fistula just closed and I have suffered uh, a lot with, with all these problems. But I have to tell you, I have to credit um, this doctor, this nephrologist at my dialysis center for just informing me of everything, telling me what I was allowed to eat and what not. He was really informative and I'm, I'm just so grateful for everything that um, he has done for me. So before you went on dialysis and before the disease progressed to a level that you needed dialysis. Did you have to follow a specific diet? Were there other limitations that you had at that point? So before dialysis, I was allowed to, I thought, basically eat anything, but the lower my GFR became, the GFR is, the, is an indicator for uh, kidney function. And um, I think when I first came to Germany, it was um, not optimal. It was already, I think it was less than 70, if I remember correctly. And the, the higher it is, the better. So up to 100. The lower the GFR, the worse it is for your kidneys. And so uh, uh, my GFR was not uh, optimal and at an optimal level. And um, so I had to eat more fruit and vegetables. And um, the funny thing is the the lower my GFR got, the worse I started feeling. I would get all these, um, I, I would just feel strange and really sick. And uh, when I went to the doctor to have it checked out, they they realized that it was um, 
uh, a cystic infection. And, um, and that is the most horrible thing. Anyone will tell you that uh, cystic infection is just terrible to go through. And um, I would then be given um, antibiotics and so on or be treated in hospital. I remember um, the, the worst bout of infection I had. I had spent five weeks in hospital. And uh, while I was there, I then had to start dialysis. So that's how you ultimately had to go on dialysis. How did your body tolerate the frequent treatments? Were there any complications? I mean, you mentioned the fistula. What did you do to pass the time? So um, how did dialysis affect me? I can honestly tell you I was probably one of the more positive people there. Some people would come in every time um, when they had a session. So I had my regular mates uh, for every session and one, my neighbor uh, was a man, an older man, and he would come in every single time and complain, oh my God, you know, dialysis again. And I can honestly tell you, I, I never said that to myself. What I did say to myself was, you have to do this. I want to live and I'm going to just do it. It wasn't always easy. I suffered, um, yeah, I don't know. You've got to, uh, the dialysis the, the nurses have to withdraw water from your body uh, with the toxins. And sometimes uh, maybe they withdraw too much and, and then you feel faint. I would vomit sometimes and feel really, really tired and faint. And then I would, after the session was over, I would have to, just stay behind. Uh, when they removed the needle uh, from my fistula at the end of the session, you would have to then press really hard for maybe five, ten minutes to, to stop the blood and then they would put a plaster on and sometimes, you know, it would just bleed and bleed and not stop and so this was a, a big problem but it did happen occasionally. I, I can tell you in the five years and nine months I was on dialysis, it happened more often than I would have liked. But um, the last year, everything went really, really well. The other thing I would like to mention, again, the German healthcare system, my goodness, I got taken to dialysis by taxi. They didn't want you um, to drive. Um, and in my case, my goodness, I don't think I would have because... You know, I didn't always know how I would feel after the session. And so the health insurance company paid for my trip to dialysis and then again back home. And I didn't have to pay a single cent. So in my case, I went three times a week for four hours at a time. I, had, I did have the weekend free. And how I passed my time was that I would read. I'm an avid reader. I would finish a book in two or three days because I had so much time there. I didn't really talk much to the um, other people there because they, um, most of them were not so positive. Some of them handled it really well, I must say, and they used to have their chats, but I really enjoyed, I preferred reading my book. Uh, in the beginning, I took physical books with me and I have quite a collection of uh, bookmarks and um, and after that, I then downloaded uh, books from uh, onto my phone. 
so it was easier to to handle because you know yeah how do you uh, read a book with just one available arm now you mentioned earlier that there was a slight complication something that had to do with that fistula can you elaborate on that not everybody has a problem with fistulas. Um, there are many, many people, people at dialysis uh, I met who had a fistula created and they had dialysis uh, for 10 years, you know, just through that one fistula. In my case, I think the problem was that my veins were just too weak and deep and every time a fistula was created, it just wouldn't work. The artificial fistulas, I really had a problem with. The the center even sent me to Wiesbaden, a city maybe 600 uh, kilometers from Dresden in the far uh, far west of, of Germany. And there was a really good, uh, famous uh, professor there who, who uh, created these fistulas for me twice I went there. And again, the health insurance paid for my trip there by train and back. My goodness, um, I was really lucky. But these fistulas, because they they just failed every single time. In uh, 2018, I landed in hospital four times. And my, my nephrologist used to say, every second month, you know, you the, the fistula would just fail and you would then have to go to hospital. And then they decided to to fit a catheter in my chest. And of course, that worked a lot better. It's not designed to last forever, uh, but um, that worked uh, well. I did uh, suffer an infection once in the uh, catheter, uh, but it was treated with, with antibiotics. It tried to keep me out of hospital there because it was at the height of uh, the corona pandemic. How did having to go on dialysis affect your work and your personal life? Did the treatment not cost you a thing at all either? Let me start by saying all these treatments for five years and nine months, and I have to tell you, I didn't miss a single session, didn't cost me a penny. I, I'm just so grateful. How did I end up in Germany? I'm just so grateful to you know, the almighty, and um, I, I still can't believe it today. But how did it affect my work? I, I couldn't work on a dialysis day. I, I did try to work on the days where I didn't have dialysis. So in my case, I went on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays so that I could have the weekend off. Other people go on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. But uh, the Tuesdays and Thursdays, I then uh, could work, but uh, I didn't always feel good. Yeah. And what about your personal life? On the days where I did have dialysis and, uh, and arrived home, I didn't want to see anybody. I was quite happy to just relax, watch TV, go to bed, and um, and then the next day would be an off day, and, and then I felt a little bit better. I used to go to work, and then... If a friend had a, a dinner or something and invited me, I would then gladly go. Uh, but that's why I enjoyed the weekend so much because it was two days without dialysis and and then I had more time to cook, uh, which I enjoy very much. And then I would invite friends over and I really appreciate uh, my friends always checking up on me and you know just being there for uh, to listen to me. And um, I. I 
have uh, made many, many good friends here. According to data from the NIH, as of August 2021, 90,201 people were on the waiting list for a kidney in the United States. And the median waiting time for an adult to receive a new kidney is 46 to 59.1 months, so between four and five years. How long did you have to wait? And do you remember what it was like when you found out that a suitable match had been found and that you would receive a new kidney? Oh my goodness, I can't tell you. Waiting for a kidney, it's just, we were told, uh, I attended this, uh, all the dialysis patients were invited to a seminar at the University Hospital here in Dresden, and uh, we were told that the waiting period was between six and eight years. And uh, Germans are not very eager to donate their organs, and so I thought, me little old South African lady, you know, what? why would I get a kidney from anybody in Germany? And so I didn't hold out much hope. Um, I wasn't looking forward to being on dialysis forever and a day, but I, I really didn't dream that I would one day get a, a, a kidney. I can tell you the day I received the news, we were told at the seminar that uh, usually the phone call comes in the middle of the night. And uh, in my case, it came at 11.30 in the morning. And uh, for some reason, uh, the, the center at the university hospital, they do all the, the um, kidney transplants there. He phoned my cell phone first and I I, I guess he couldn't wait, and I, I answered too late. And then um, he and then he phoned my landline, and um, he then started by saying, "Oh, we um, we have a kidney for you." And <laughs> I was I really had to you you know think about this for oh my god, you have a kidney for me. But then I just. I, I almost cried because I didn't think this phone call would ever come. And so he told me that, um, please, I should pack my uh, little suitcase and, and uh, come straight away. From the time I received the call to the time I arrived there was just over an hour. And, and so that's how it happened. So then you arrive at that hospital, anxious, nervous happy, exhilarated, but uh, I'm sure that the nervousness kind of outweighed all of that. What happened next? What do you remember from that day? And how long did it take in terms of surgery time until you then woke up with a new kidney inside of you? So I arrived at the hospital just before one o'clock that afternoon, and I had to ring the bell to be let in, and a man came to the door. He wasn't a doctor. And uh, he said, what can we do for you? And I said, oh, you have a kidney for me. They said, of course, then you may enter. He then asked for my um, health insurance card and asked if I was vaccinated, which I was by then. And then they did a lot of checks. They sent me to the heart center for for an ECG. And some other people came to do a few things. I can't even remember what. But while I was sitting there waiting for people, various doctors to come and see me, I was then um, sending messages to all my friends. Uh, Of course, my family, I phoned while I was still at home. 
Uh, but uh, to my friends telling them, oh, I'm here at the university hospital, they have a kidney for me. Uh, I was then um, sent to a, a ward. So um, the nurse uh, just asked me to remove my clothes and uh, put on a hospital gown. And um, and then the, the surgeon came to see me. And this surgeon, I recognized him. He was the same one who removed my right kidney four and a half years before that. And he then came to tell me how it would work and, you know, they, that he was going to be the surgeon and so on. And uh, I got wheeled to the uh, operating theater and my surgery was from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. After which I was wheeled to the recovery ward to intensive care. Do you remember that very first thought on your mind? as you woke up in that recovery room, knowing that you now have a new kidney inside of you? So I don't know if um, I woke up by myself, but a, a, a doctor uh, woke me up, I think, to show me the, the volume of urine in the bag. And I have to tell you that while I was on dialysis, my body uh, had retained water, so I was not able to pass water. And uh, and so, yeah, he held up. He looked really proud. Uh, he held up this bag. You know, it was full with urine. And so I I was really happy about that. And uh, a little bit later, the, uh, the uh, night nephrologist, he was on call. He then came to show me that my... Um, he showed me actually that my creatinine level was 79 and this is just perfect. It has to be under 80 and so I didn't know that at the time but he looked really happy and so I felt happy and then um, the next morning um, I could sleep again then after that. Nobody disturbed me again and then um, I fell asleep and the next morning um, everybody came to to, to say that, you know, they had phoned my dialysis center because I didn't have to go to dialysis anymore then. Uh, they just came to see how I was. The surgeon also paid, came to pay me a visit. Okay. I was a little shocked to learn that more than 8,500 people are currently waiting for a donor kidney in Germany, while in 2021 there were only 933 organ donations in a country of over 80 million people. A big problem is that Germany has a so-called opt-in program, where people have to undergo a somewhat cumbersome process in order to become organ donors in case of their passing. Here in South Carolina, it is also an opt-in process, but a pretty simple one. You get asked every single time you apply for a new driver's license or you renew your driver's license if you are willing to be an organ donor and they print a little heart icon on your driver's license. So it is clear that your own choice is to either be a donor or to not be a donor in case you get in a car crash or any other type of accident. In any case, you were extremely fortunate to receive a match and to do so relatively quickly by German standards. Now, what do you think the German system needs to improve to help more people? And did you see a lot of people die on dialysis because there was no life-saving organ available for them? To my knowledge, I don't think so many people die while on dialysis. There is, a, a, um, I think there are three 
uh, list. Um, so an urgent list. So, you know, someone's about to die and I, I guess they, they would get a, a kidney then or any other organ. There's uh, a normal list that I was on, for example, and and then the old for old list. So I think the age is um, the old when you you are old for uh, dialysis or for a uh, kidney transplant when you are 65. So between 65 and 75, that's a cutoff date uh, age. I'm sorry. So Germans, uh, they are not. Germans don't have many children, so the population is growing older, and uh, and that's why they have this old for old list. But in my case, I I uh, was on the normal list. Um, and what Germany can do to improve this uh, organ donation in Belgium, for example, you automatically uh, you are automatically a donor unless you opt out. And so I I think. Maybe um, Germany could consider that um, option. So, what are the requirements um, that a person has to meet in order to be considered for a donor organ? So, there is a, a, a list, an organ donor list or um, recipient list, and it's uh, when you get a kidney. So, in my case. It's not that I, I just moved up the list. The, 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 a kidney becomes available and it, um, there's a, 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 a center in Leiden in, in the Netherlands that handles all these uh, kidneys becoming available. And then they offer it to the hospitals and um, you can refuse. Uh, uh, the hospital can refuse if they want. But I think the University Hospital in Dresden was the third call uh, that the Leiden Center made, and they decided to to accept the kidney. But just to talk a little bit about this list, I went um, on the list four years before I obtained the transplant. I, uh, although they put you on the list uh, from the first day of dialysis, so that would have been almost two years before that. So you could say I waited four years, even though I had already been on dialysis for almost six years. But the the, the week of uh, uh, tests they did, they check your heart and your lungs and everything possible. And um, because you're unlikely to get a kidney or undergo a kidney transplant if uh, you don't have a, a well-functioning heart. If we have somebody listening who is just starting dialysis, scared, uncertain of whether they will receive a donor kidney on time. What would be your message to them? I would say just trust your healthcare system to do the right thing. Live one day at a time. You will drive yourself crazy if you are always thinking about it. Be positive. And I, I, all I can do is just wish you good luck. Did you ever find out who was your kidney donor? Anything about the circumstances? And if you were able right now to send a message to that person, what would it be? I'm not sure about this, but I think there's a law in Germany where you, you, you're not allowed to, to know uh, the details of who donated a kidney to you or an organ. Uh, but uh, the surgeon did tell me that uh, the kidney was from um, a woman 
from Dresden and uh, who was younger than me. And so I was really happy to hear that, yeah, she was younger than me. So my kidney is, I guess, you know, uh, because it's younger than <laughs> me, it's, um, it gave me a new lease on life. But uh, in many other countries, I think in South Africa, you're not allowed to know either, but if you really wanted to, to thank the person, they, they would consider giving you the, the contact details. What would I say to my donor? Oh my gosh, I, I would just say that I'm just so grateful that for her generosity, what a gift, my goodness. Not everybody survives uh, um, getting a new kidney. There are many, many people. Uh, one of my brothers uh, did get a kidney in Cape Town and uh, he unfortunately did not survive. He developed a blood clot. But my goodness, it's um, been um, a year and a half in, in my case since I got the kidney. And um, I'm, I'm here to tell the story. I, I would really express my gratitude uh, to my donor. You already touched on your body having tolerated the transplant pretty well so far. Have there been any complications, any medications you still have to take, anything that has impacted your life from a medical side since receiving that transplant? So, my goodness, everything has worked out so well. Oh, my God, I... Everything, all my figures uh, have just been perfect with my values. The first time I heard it, three months after my transplant, um, I went for a checkup. I, I had to go every month. Uh, now I just go every two months. But um, I heard that my, my values were just perfect textbook readings. And um, of course, I was happy when I heard it at the hospital. Um, and I came home and I just burst into tears of, of joy. But um, so I can't say I've had any complications so far. Um, please pray for me and um, that it continues. I do have to take medication. It was funny on dialysis. I had to take uh, different uh, tablets and uh, I remember going to the pharmacy to get my prescription filled of the new tablets I had to take when I was discharged from hospital and I said okay everything's different now and uh, I, I gave my tablets uh, that I took while on dialysis I, I gave uh, to the nephrologist at the dialysis center to just thank him and I, I went to say goodbye to him and and he was really happy that I brought the tablets uh, along so that he could use them with other people. So I've got to, I think I will have to take these immune suppressants for the rest of my life. Six years ago, I had my right kidney removed. So the kidney was uh, removed with the cysts. And, um, and so a, a lot of space was created. And when I heard, my surgeon told me that the uh, transplanted kidney was relatively big and um, and so luckily there there was space so to move it in but the, the these immunosuppressants are good uh, they they prevent your body from rejecting the the new organ and so they are good for my new organ but um, the immunosuppressants are not good for my one remaining kidney because it's still it's a, the cystic kidney Three months after the transplant, I had my first bout of a, a cystic infection. And then 11 months after that, I had the second um, 
infection. And that is just a horrible feeling. And so um, I hope it stays away, but it just depends on on um, on how uh, the tablets handle or how my body handles the tablets. Yeah. And how has your life changed now that you've been gifted a second chance? Do you do anything differently? Has your outlook on life shifted? Oh my goodness, I had so much energy after the transplant. When I was moved to the intensive care ward, physiotherapist would come around. Um, the first day he didn't come around, but from the second day, uh, he took me around the ward. I had to walk uh, just to exercise. I, and I just got better and better. I was just so full of energy. I would go for walks and it was the heart of summer uh, when I got my kidney and um, and it was just a, a, a new outlook on life. Dialysis is really restrictive. Uh, you're not allowed to travel or you always have to consider it. I did go on holiday uh, to um, another European country uh, while on dialysis, but it, it was just every second day going to hospital, it, it was not fun. And uh, you have to make it worth your while. And so I spent two weeks there and it was, you waste a lot of time and, um, and you don't always feel good and then you're sort of a, a downer, you know, for everyone else. You know, they want to go out and do things and you just want to stay home. And so it's not the best. But now I really can look forward to traveling again. Um, of course, the last three years with, with Corona, I mean, I did get my kidney during the height of Corona. And so I, I will consider it definitely. But I was told to wait a year uh, before, uh, after getting the kidney, uh, before I could travel again long distance. Um, and so I will definitely, I definitely have travel plans of working on them. Yeah. Where did you pull your strength from through all of this? You mentioned that many of the people on dialysis would be grumpy, upset, perhaps even hopeless. So what gave you the strength to pull through? Oh my gosh, I, I grew up in a home um, I inherited this disease from my father. This has a 50-50 chance. Uh, but in our case, uh, you know, all of us, uh, all, the, all my siblings inherited this. But I grew up in a home where I never heard my father complain. I never heard my mother complain. My goodness, uh, I, I, I think it couldn't have been easy uh, on, on my father suffering from all these um, infections and so on. But I, I do remember admiring them because um, there are other people in the world who just are, are always depressed and complain and, you know, they want everyone to, to suffer the way they do. I then um, decided to, to move to Singapore and, and then from Singapore I came to Germany. But I did this all by myself. I didn't come for a man or anything. And some people have called me brave. And um, and to me, I, I never considered myself brave. I just wanted to, to do it. And, and I did. Of course, it wasn't easy, but I, I just did it. And um, uh, But the other thing is my, my positive attitude to life. Um, as I said before, you you can either live through this and, you know, just turn over and die. Uh, but I decided this is uh, what I need to do 
to live and um, I've just got to accept it. I can't say I always went uh, to the Alice's willingly or gladly, um, but I never complained. And um, I just knew I just had to get down and do it. It's, it's just my never give up uh, attitude. Truly inspiring. But you're also inspiring people in other ways. You teach English to a variety of clients. What got you interested in doing that? I've just always been passionate about grammar, or maybe not grammar, but, but the English language. I remember I was 12 years old and I knew I wanted to be an English teacher. I ended up doing something else, but uh, when I um, decided that I wanted to leave South Africa, I first did this uh, course to teach English as a foreign language, and, um, and that I then went to Singapore first and then came to Germany. Do you have one story of a student or a teaching experience that deeply impacted you? I can't remember or think of one one particular student or one instance, um, you know, that that I um, that particularly impacted me. It, it's just. You know, the best feeling is when they when they say something and they correct themselves and then they say that, oh, I learned this grammar from you. This happened so often and it just warms my heart. I, I <laughs> this is the kind of thing just uh, that just inspires me to continue and uh, just never give up. I, I'm, I'm, I just um, it's just a wonderful, wonderful feeling. With all your travels, your international moves, your medical struggles, and all of it, would you say that you were just really, really lucky? So luck and timing have played a big role uh, in my life. But um, I also have to say that I, that I have put in a lot of hard work. It's, it's not easy moving countries, my goodness, from South Africa to Singapore. And then um, I came directly uh, uh, from Singapore to Germany. And so you, you have to listen to your, uh, I had to listen to my doctors, uh, what to eat, what not to eat. Um, but yeah, you, before leaving any country, I think you really have to do your research. You can't just arrive and expect things to work from day one. Um, I, I, I had to apply for my permit, residence permit and uh, work permit from outside the EU. And so um, I, I think it was easier in Singapore. But my point is that you've really got to do your research. And um, of course, we all need luck in life. But um, I, I know I did put in a lot of hard work. I, I, um, I love what I do, and um, and I, I would say be passionate about what you do, and um, and everything else will will, will just um, fall into uh, into place. Thank you so much, Neriman, for being here today on the phone. First remote interview ever gone well. Um, for talking to us and sharing your story. Now, if our listeners have some questions that they would like to have you address in the future, would you be willing to talk to me again for a follow-up interview? If I've touched one person out there, um, of course, I'm, I'm happy to, to do a follow-up and, uh, and, uh, and try to answer your questions. 
And that was episode four, one about second chances. Nariman got a second chance to a life free from dialysis, one I'm sure she will live intentionally and with purpose. And who could you give a second chance today? Perhaps you could pick up the phone and call that old friend you've been meaning to forgive for so long. Or maybe it's time to finally forgive yourself for being flawed in one way or another. Newsflash, we are all flawed. Some are just better at pretending than others. So don't hold off. You don't want it to be too late for that second chance. I hope you also had goosebumps while listening to Neriman talk about her journey and about the gratitude she has for that woman who chose to be an organ donor. I'm an organ donor myself, and if you have not thought about it yet, perhaps today is the day. No matter what the process in your country or state or municipality is, find out what you can do and then make a decision. I would be glad if my kidney could give another Nairman out there a chance to a normal life one day after I pass away. Organ donation really does save lives. So just think about it, just for a moment, not too long, then act. Become an organ donor. It can make a huge difference in somebody's life. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and share it with somebody else out there. Check out www.thoughtvolutionpodcast.com. That's our website, www.thoughtvolutionpodcast.com. We have an intake form that you can fill out if you want to share your very own story with us. There's also a merch store with some of the coolest t-shirts, hats, and hoodies out there. I'm wearing the Make Kindness Your Default hoodie right now. And what could be more fitting for this episode, really? Now, if you have a question for Nariman, call us at 864-501-5033. That's 864-501-5033. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram. You can find us there as Thoughtvolution. Last but not least, thank you for keeping an open mind and for being willing to evolve on topics such as this very important topic of organ donation. I love you all and I'm so glad you're here. Check back next week for another captivating story right here with me. See you then.